Hello, and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I've been thinking about anger a lot recently. Anger is one of the most complex, demanding, and difficult emotions that we deal with on a regular basis. And I think that this comes down to the fact that two things both seem clearly true to me. The first is that anger comes with many costs. Costs to our bodies, our relationships, and then so many costs out in the world. And then the second thing that's true is that there's a vital energy associated with anger that is extremely powerful and when harnessed can be immensely useful. It's a mobilizing force, both in our own lives and then socially. And I think that it's because both of these aspects are so apparent that anger is a bit challenging to talk about sometimes. And we get a lot of questions related to this emotional experience. And people argue about the relative value of anger a lot more than they do for related emotions like happiness or sadness, fear, whatever else people experience. So today we're going to be exploring anger, particularly how we can relate to it in general, and then focusing on how we can use the positive aspects of it without being used by the more problematic aspects. So to help us do that, I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, a best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Forrest, and I am thoroughly delighted that we're talking about anger. I could say personally, anger and I would say anxiety and feelings of shame or inadequacy have been very important areas for me to explore. I'm not particularly melancholy or depressive, Mm, so mm -hmm. sadness per se has not been a big one. And of those, I think really most recently, anger has been a central inquiry in my own personal practice. Yeah, same. And you already did this a bit in your answer, but I would like to begin by framing anger relative to other emotions. Anger is often referred to as one of the basic emotions that people have alongside happiness and sadness, disgust, other emotions like that. And of course, there are many theories of emotion categorization. There are a lot of different ways that people talk about this. But anger is clearly very closely tied to our biological systems, particularly our fight or flight response. And something that I want to highlight here in the introduction is that most of the time when we have an immediate and aversive reaction to something, that reaction is really supercharged because our threat response system is very sensitive in general and it works really, really quickly. And it does this without much contribution from our more top-down cognitive systems. And this is where anger tends to have all of those problems associated with it, when it's not regulated by our other systems in some way. And so, Dad, I would love you to to offer some additional framing here in terms of how you think about anger and maybe how you've changed your relationship with it over time. Well, a few distinctions come to mind. The first is between anger as a mood Hmm. contrasted with anger as an acute, intensive state of mind. People can have a background sense of exasperation, annoyance, feeling put upon or frustrated or irritated or irritable that's kind of simmering beneath the surface. It's not yet acutely engaged, but it's there. And I think that's a really useful thing for people to become aware of. One thing that I've focused on in my own personal practice is being really more attentive to subtleties of exasperation or irritability, which are kind of humming in the background. 
and yet really shape how I might react to something or interpret events. So that's one distinction. Second distinction, I think, comes from the research of the affective neuroscientist Jak Ponksepp, wonderful, wonderful, legendary researcher, unfortunately no longer alive. And he really stressed the commonalities and the kinship among humans and non-human animals, particularly with complex nervous systems such as fellow mammals. One of the more interesting findings was the difference between rage and predatory pursuit. Mm. For example, and it helps me to appreciate the difference, for example, in tennis between being angry at your opponent compared to they hit the ball your way and you just rip a top spin forehand at them as they rush the net. You're not mad at them, but boy, there's an intensity there. And so mm -hmm. I think that's also mm -hmm. a helpful thing to distinguish. And then the last thing I'll talk about is a time I went to Haiti a decade or so ago for the very first time in that country. And I'd really never seen a developing country in a deep way before that. And I am a fairly mellow, equable, cheerful kind of person in general. And still, for the 48 hours I was there, I was in a cold rage. That's how I would describe my reaction. I was in control. I wasn't outwardly angry. And internally, I was appalled. I was mm, outraged mm -hmm. at the conditions in which most of the people there were living through no fault of their own. And that's an interesting distinction. I think there's a place when we particularly engage social justice work in which we can sit in a kind of fieriness or what Kristen F. and others might speak of as fierce compassion. Uh, we can sit in moral outrage while not letting ill will and hatred and hostility invade and remain and poison our hearts. Those are some really helpful distinctions to begin with here as we talk about some more of those positive and negative aspects of anger. A lot of the framing around anger that I found really interesting comes from the Buddhist tradition, which obviously mm. you have a much more deep relationship with than I do, but I'm I'm more of a I'm uh, working on you. <laughs> yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm more of a Buddhist psychologist, if that makes sense, in terms of my orientation toward it. And one of the things that I appreciate with how Buddhism grapples with anger is that it generally frames it as being one of the more problematic or difficult emotional experiences that a person can have. In particular, there are many different Buddhist traditions, and the way that they use the language around this varies from tradition to tradition, so some of this is a bit of a generalization or a simplification. But there's a general referring to the three poisons, which are these key mental states that are the roots of different kinds of unwholesome action out in the world. And the three poisons are ignorance, attachment, and aversion. And anger is a key way that people express their aversion. And so I think what you're speaking to there, when you make those distinctions around different forms that anger can take, have more to do with the aversive aspect than the emotional experience itself of anger, which is just an emotional state that's closely tied to bodily states, which can actually be really useful for people. It's really useful to get a rev in the body sometimes as a protective act or to get away from danger, to fight off foes, whatever you know, useful adaptive function that it has. But it's those aversive aspects that tend to get us into trouble, particularly with other people in our relationships. Well, lots of good stuff there. It always thoroughly delights me when you bust out a Buddhist riff, probably like it delights <laughs> you when I bust out a sports riff, right? So I don't know. Anyway, 
first, uh, it's interesting that often those terms are translated, like you said, but more starkly in traditional translations as hatred, greed, and delusion. Sure, yeah. And that's a little more pointed. In the heading of a version, that, of course, includes withdrawal. Anger attacks or leans into an attack. Anxiety withdraws. But both of them are based on an aversive response to something that's unpleasant, whether it's a threat or a frustration or a personal affront. So Mm -hmm. just to kind of broaden the picture here. The Mm -hmm. other interesting thing about the poisons is that that terminology is a later translation as Buddhism moved into Tibetan and China. The original translation or closer meaning is that broadly greed anger and ignorance or delusion are fuel. Mm -hmm. They are fuels for the fires of craving that lead in turn then to so much suffering and harm. So it's interesting to reflect on anger as a kind of fuel for certain drive states or certain intensities, which then in turn, you know, make us suffer, make other people suffer as well. In the Buddhist tradition, one, I think, reason for such a focus here on anger And let's remember that this was a tradition that arose 2,500 years ago during a time of slavery, war, brutality, patriarchy, an early caste-structured system that was enormously oppressive. So there was a lot of bad stuff going on. And one reason that there's an emphasis there on anger is that it's very harmful to other people. Of all the emotions, anger tends to be the most salient in its impact on others. And I remember research on primates that you do different kinds of, you observe primates that have different sorts of emotional signaling. You know, one monkey, gorilla, signals a certain mopiness or a certain anxiety or a certain withdrawal and shame. Eh, the rest of the troop just kind of eh, notices it and shrugs and keeps on going. But mm-hmm. if that gorilla, that orangutan or chimpanzee communicates anger, the whole band gets quiet and tries to figure mm-hmm. out what's going on there. And you can kind yeah. of see a similar thing in social settings. You're at a restaurant, there's a lot of yakety-yak, people are talking, sort. but as soon as you hear someone speak in anger, the whole restaurant gets quiet. Anger mm-hmm. has a lot of impact on others. And I got to tell you, one of the things I have a lot of remorse about is just the impact of my own anger, sometimes coming out through you know critical points or eye rolls and exasperation and judgment about others, the impact of my own anger on other people. So there's a Mm. lot of focus in the Buddhist tradition about non-harming as a foundational Mm. aspect of ethics, and anger can be really quite harmful for other people. Then it gets very interesting, and I'm sure we'll get into it later, in which a person's anger is really, we would think about it, very justified, and the expression of it makes other people uncomfortable, but, you know, too bad. And then how do you make that judgment, right? Yeah, yeah. Last point, there's a proverb in the Buddhist tradition that anger is described as a barb with a honeyed tip. Mm. And unlike other negative emotions, as we experience anger, it is accompanied by dopamine and norepinephrine activation in that anger has a certain rewardingness, especially in the very beginning. You know, Mm. it's that rush of anger. It's that honeyed tip which then still, unfortunately, has a poisoned barb that harms us as well as others. And it's you know, easy to get very caught up in our anger. People don't like to feel anxious or inadequate or sad, but in the moment of anger, yeah, 
you know, kind of feels sort of good. So we need to be especially careful about it, including careful about the righteousness and the belief systems that tend mm-hmm. to accompany anger. Yeah, so a lot of great stuff. And I'm going to push back a little bit on something that you're saying here, Dad, because one of the things that I've noticed is that in general, people have a very non-judgmental holding of emotions, where emotions just are. They're not good or bad. They're just different emotions. They're a combination of sensations in the body, things we're thinking about in the brain, the whole principle in uh, Buddhism in general of non-attachment, what you're feeling at any given moment in time, holding an emotion inside of spacious awareness, all of that stuff. And in general, on the podcast, we talk about not labeling emotions. We've talked about that in the past, being very careful about monikers, like a positive emotion or a negative emotion or something like that. Most of the time, people don't apply that rule to anger. They just say anger bad. And the Uh reasons for this are everything that you just said, which is that for starters, it can be seductive. And then secondarily, it's extremely high cost. And Mm. it's extremely high cost, not just for the individual, but for the pressure that it puts on other people and other systems. And so we take a blanket view where we say, wow, there are a lot of costs associated with this thing. It's generally very hard to regulate for all those reasons I said at the beginning of the episode about it being tied to our threat response system and it being tied to more, uh, I hesitate to use this word, but I don't have a better one, more primitive, quote unquote, structures in the brain, just older structures around the amygdala, less top-down control, which is how we generally regulate our emotions, all that good stuff. And so people just go, anger bad. But there are, in my opinion at least, certainly a lot of positive aspects associated with anger. We've named some of them already. And then also, I I just want to apply some gentle pressure on this idea of like labeling emotions in general, because like emotions just are. They're, They're tied to pleasant or unpleasant sensations in the body. And so, of course, we say pleasant sensation, good, want more pleasant sensation, unpleasant sensation, bad, push that away. But obviously, there are plenty of experiences out in the world that are like pleasant, that are not great, or that are unpleasant, that are generally pretty good for us. So for me, it's like anger is useful sometimes, and it's problematic other times. It's not mm-hmm. good or bad. Does, is that a fair distinction? Oh, yeah. Okay, great. And keep going. You're, you're on to something. <laughs> Well, that was uh, that was most of the idea, but I, I think it might be helpful here to do some of the values associated with anger, the things we can get out of it. And for me personally, I'm not a very angry person dispositionally, but when I have gotten mad, it's been a real teacher for me about what I really care about and what my values are, how I want to orient myself out in the world. And so I think that our anger can be really educational. There's often a framing of anger in psychology as it being a secondary emotion. What this means is the idea that there are other emotions that are hiding underneath the anger, being concealed by it, maybe in a manner of speaking. Uh, Sadness, envy, feelings of disappointment. We've talked in the past on the podcast about the ways in which resentment, which is absolutely a manifestation of anger, can actually be a desire to connect with something that maybe you no longer have a relationship with. You feel affronted by somebody, they don't want to have a certain kind of relationship with you, and the only way that you can continue to feel a feeling of connection with them is by getting pissed off at them. Mm. So these are all things that can help us become more aware of deeper layers of ourselves. So I think that anger can be a great divining tool for all of that. So we have things that make us angry, drivers, Mm -hmm. pain, physical pain. There's a lot of selfing that gets involved with anger. You know, fear tends to be really primal, right? Mm. Even before much sense of ego 
or personality gets involved. But a lot of the sources of anger have to do with the sense of being treated unfairly or being affronted or provoked. Mm. How dare you talk to me in that way? Indignation, right, which is like a loss of dignity and higher status, like how dare you, is in the anger spectrum. So it's helpful for people to kind of be aware of the drivers of anger. And I would totally agree with you, Forrest. You've made me reflect on you know, 35 years of clinical practice. Uh, (laughs) And the truth is, I would say much more often, I'm trying to help people get in touch with their anger and Mm -hmm. to realize that they deserve to be angry compared to where they were when they came in the door. If people are chronically angry about something, what that is often an indicator of, at least in the clinical populations, you know, that I've worked with, you know, pretty normal range, although definitely some severely distressed and dysfunctional people. If people are chronically angry, typically there's a sense of helplessness with that or futility, like they haven't been able to make a change or they haven't taken the steps to really own their anger and the legitimacy of it and put their feet on the ground so they have some traction, you know, engage the clutch to put their personal car into motion. Mm. You know, the anger's like an engine revving, but there's no movement from it. There's no expression. There's no directedness with it. So trying to help them with that regard. But there've been so many cases, especially if you think about people coming into therapy who belong to groups that have classically had their anger suppressed or shamed or punished, notably women as a group, to make a generalization. You know, it's really appropriate to help people realize No, actually, what happened to you in junior high school or what is happening to you in your job today is really bad. And it's really appropriate to be angry about it and to push against it and want to make things better. In your work with people, were there things that you think helped them connect with a feeling of appropriateness attached to their anger? Was there a story they were telling themselves about the nature of anger maybe that was disconnecting them from it or... Really, wherever you want to take that. Oh, that's a great question. And in therapy, so often what we're dealing with is we're dealing with what's between the person and a healthy adaptive step within a larger and really quite hopeful frame that there is a natural healthiness or movement toward health or developmental progress within us as beings grounded biologically, which has been obstructed in some Mm -hmm. way. It's been hindered in some way. And there's some terminology actually in Buddhist psychology that talks about the five hindrances. They hinder us or they cover over our innate wisdom, wakefulness, and goodness. And so you could think of, and among them is anger. Ill will is among those, the big five hindrances. And so anger hinders us in various ways. So in that context then, first, sometimes what's helpful is to really work with people cognitively because they have beliefs that they don't deserve to be angry or whatever happened was a small deal or it's their fault anyway or they deserve that. You know, there's a whole set of beliefs around that. So you work at the belief level. Typically, you make some progress at the belief level and then you bump into a hindrance, a block that's more emotional and somatic and even unconscious and rooted in childhood learning where there's a fear that if they dare, to reveal their anger or to be moved by their anger, that will lead to catastrophe. It will 
harm or destroy their attachment figure, like their mother or father, who perhaps is vulnerable, or more commonly, the anger will be severely punished. They will be cast out of the group. They will be beaten or worse. They just cannot dare to be openly angry. And then you deal with that inhibition, which made sense back then. And then you help people gradually undo that inhibition Mm -hmm. through repeated experiences that it's okay to be a little bigger, to be a little louder, to be a little fuller, to move in the direction of the full expression of your anger and then observe again and again and again. Each time you push back the bars of your invisible cage, to use our shared metaphor, that it's actually okay. And you can claim that ground. It's like reclaiming your own ground. Mm. And along the way, finding people, including your therapist, it can get really good when my clients are mad at me. Mm. Yeah. How so? Uh, it's classic therapeutic technique. It's not that we go around pissing off our patients. You know, to <laughs> well, I mean, not Although, intentionally, maybe. We you do know. inadvertently, undoubtedly. <laughs> uh, no, it's great. You bring it into the room. And yeah. so the person is irritated at the therapist that who didn't seem to listen carefully enough the last session or is charging them more money than they want to pay or mm. is going on vacation. How dare you? <laughs> Go mm-hmm, on vacation mm-hmm, in August mm-hmm. or some movies about Removing that. the resource, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or just as a therapist, you blew it in some way. You mm-hmm. said a stupid thing or you used a word or you did not sufficiently nuance or qualify a suggestion that then turned out badly. And so then you deal with that. And to actually have a lived example for a person in which they're bringing a grievance that they have some heat about and to really validate the heat. To unpack it in a in a container that will not become explosive, and then to be authentically responsive as a therapist, not to deflect it, but to really own it, whatever's valid, and to be a demonstration of what it's like to actually go to the maximum reasonable responsibility for another person's mm. complaint, even if it had you know more topspin on it than you really needed to have in the beginning. No yeah. problem, can handle it, can receive the pitch. And we can keep the game going. So that's a mm. that's a very good moment for many people. Yeah, I I mean that's definitely been my experience in the rounds of therapy that I've done. When you feel like you have a safe environment to express emotions that you're repressing in some way, yeah. that can be a remarkably healing experience for people. And we've talked a fair amount about repression on the podcast in the past. But I think that a lot of the cautions that people offer about anger do lead to it being a frequently repressed emotion. And then you named all of the dynamics that can emerge, whether it's in terms of social structures or our family structures often, where anger is confined to a particular group of people, chronically men and chronically the adults and families, where the adults are allowed to express the anger, but the children are not. And so this leads us to have an unsafe relationship with that emotion. And some of these coping tendencies can be pretty subtle. I've done increasing exploration as an adult into some of my coping strategies around anger, and maybe we could talk about those for a second. I think that mine generally are more about fear than about anger, but I suspect I do this a little bit with anger too. Mm. Because I'm a get-along kind of guy, I want people to feel good about themselves, I want them to be basically happy, and I want them to be happy with me. And so a lot of the time when people express concern to me, uh, they express a fear, something they're mad about, something Mm. like that, 
My first tendency that I have to be very conscious about is that I'm extremely counterphobic, and I tend to push against the fear, anger, or concern of the other person. I tend to tell them, here are the reasons why you're actually okay, or you're actually safe, or you don't really need to be bothered by this thing, or why it will all work out well in the end. Of course, conditioned, I'm sure, to an extent by the fact that things generally have worked out pretty well for me, and not in the least of which because I come from very privileged circumstances. So I've had a lot of good outcomes in my life that have reinforced that as an operating structure inside of me that may or may not be true for somebody else who's going through very different experiences and comes from a very different background. And man, have I gotten a lot of feedback about that not really being the greatest for other people at various moments in time. And it's been a real point of learning for me around allowing people to have that safe expression of emotion with somebody who they view as a supportive and caring individual. And it's not just about down-regulating people's emotions all of the time, which is often our tendency is to down-regulate people. You're essentially talking, Dad, about how in therapy, sometimes your job is to up-regulate people. Sometimes it's to get them more in touch with those powerful forces that are working inside of them, as opposed to trying to just control their emotions in a very top-down way. A lot of it boils down to, is it productive? Is it helpful to go there? And often I think people, you know, they get kind of stuck in anger because they don't know how to engage it in a way that's mm -hmm. actually productive, that would actually lead to a good result without blowing other people out of the water. And it's interesting, somebody made a comment back in, I think my graduate school. So this is mm. a long time ago. And I've thought about it. It's a, it was a very provocative one. Uh, the person made the point that Freud really talked about the major suppressed drive or emotion as sexuality in his Victorian era. Yeah. It's very prim, proper, professional class. Vienna, relic of the Victorian age, did his early work, really formative thinking around the turn of the century, last century. And yeah, there's probably a lot of truth to that. Then this person pointed out that in America, where sexuality is kind of all over the place and is really revved up, that the primary thing that is actually repressed in America is aggression, aggressiveness, mm. which then leaks out. And I think arguably mm. what we've seen maybe politically over the last 30 years or so is a kind of owning of the anger from cultural conservatives mm. who feel like their country has just went off the rails starting in the 60s with then a growing angry backlash from probably in terms of numbers based on polling, 55, 60% of the country who are increasingly angry at this large, probably minority of people dragging their country in a direction that they don't like. So yeah. more anger. But I think that was a very interesting perspective to kind of reflect on, and including under the heading of Freud's famous phrase that you know, the return of the repressed. Yeah, totally. Okay, so to summarize a lot of what we've talked about so far, on the one hand, we've got all of these useful aspects, and I've intentionally had us spend a little bit more time talking about the useful aspects just because I think that the story of anger is often a very negative story. So I'm personally inclined in my pursuit of fairness to try to balance the scales a little bit here. And also because, frankly, the negative aspects of anger are often extremely obvious. 
In addition to the ones that we've talked about, anger also just comes with a lot of physiological costs. It's closely tied to the stress system, and the stress system puts a lot of pressure on the body. There are also some associations with health outcomes like heart disease and a variety of other negative health outcomes for people who express chronic anger or who refer to themselves as a chronically angry person. So in addition to the obvious social costs, there are these very real individual costs to us, to our bodies, of expressing a lot of anger a lot of the time. So we've got these two different poles in these two different directions. And so for me to offer a one-sentence summary of everything we've done so far, I believe in treating anger with a lot of respect and a lot of appreciation, but to maybe turn down the fear that we have of anger, particularly of our own anger. But I think that we can hold it spaciously, we can acknowledge that it exists, and then we can go through this process of trying to use it as a tool in various ways, whether that's seeking the bottom of finding what's underneath that angry experience, if there is something underneath it, and there isn't always, but if there is, it can be a good teacher, or harnessing its more vital, useful aspects. So I'd like to ask you here, Dad, with that as our setup, what do you think supports people in working with their anger and getting more of the value out of it without so much of the pain? It's a journey I've taken myself because, mm. as you've heard me say, in my family growing up, my mom and dad had a monopoly on expressed yeah. anger. And Common story. Just, yeah. Whew, it was shut down in me. And I am reminded here as you talk about this workshop I took in my mm. early 20s, kind of a psychodrama workshop in which we worked with the expression of anger. And we would start play acting it. So you'd get people who were kind of fairly matched together and who would just start blasting each other. And I had to learn how to step into that to be able to do mm. it. If you imagine uh, anger on a spectrum zero to 10, to be able to go to a 10, there's no 11, full out, your spit's flying, you're completely worked up, to be able to access that actually can help you never go there again. And so mm. one of the first steps for many people, I think, is to claim or reclaim their capacity to fully experience anger and to fully express it. That doesn't mean you're necessarily going to act it out. Actually, when you become more integrated in that way, you have less and less warded off or compartmentalized or repressed, then it doesn't leak out and hijack you and grab you and take you and others by surprise. You're more one. You feel one mm -hmm. with yourself. And along with that can come a real claiming of your own vitality. Because that which suppresses anger robs us of vitality. Mm. And so as we open to our anger, we actually become more vital. So I think that would be my first suggestion. Um, I'll pause there, get your take about really helping yourself uh, find ways to own and allow the fullness of your anger carefully, especially the expression aspects of it carefully, but in a way that's fully integrated. Natural question, what supports people in doing that? And so I think of some of the things that might support me in doing that. The first, feeling supported by other people. Yeah. Strong social relationships, feeling like mm -hmm. you're doing this, you're finding those boundaries inside of settings where you have some confidence that you won't be immediately judged or that you won't be pushed away if you express this anger. So finding allies, for starters, and environments that you feel allied to. 
Another one I think for a lot of people with with intense expression of emotion in general, and it's so funny that I've gone in this direction on the podcast because my brand is like Captain Cognitive in general, but I just think it's so body-based. Like there is such a feeling associated with super high levels of anger at 10 on the scale or super high levels of sadness or whatever. They're so grounded in the mechanisms of our bodies. And so what helps somebody attach to those parts of their body more? Where does your anger live inside Mm. of you? Is it like a chest emotion for you? Is it a head emotion? Is it a stomach emotion? Okay, like, do you have a story attached to that part of your body? Is there something in it that is bugging you or something in it that you have a negative relationship with, something in it that is inhibiting you maybe from that full expression of that thing? And I'm sure that we could create a list of a thousand other inner strengths of various kinds that support people in finding that full expression of anger, but that's the first thing that comes to mind for me. What about being aware of the precursors to the anger and dealing with them? You know, yeah. there's this two-stage totally. process. Yeah, there's, there's the priming, and then there's the fuse that lights it, mm. bingo, the trigger. Mm-hmm. And becoming aware of the background can actually, I think, help people attend to it. You know, if there's a background sense of just you're sort of stressed out or you feel let down by the people you live with, well, talking with them about doing more of their share. So those would be among the examples of dealing with the priming so that when things happen, the fuse doesn't light it so much. Yeah, one of the metaphors that you offered to me when I was pretty young, I forget the first time I heard this one, but it's always stuck with me, is the idea that our interactions with other people pile up in various ways. And the language that you use to talk about that is the idea of throwing matches into the corner of a room where every negative interaction you have with somebody or every irritating moment that you have throughout a day, it's like throwing a match into the corner of a room. An unlit match, yeah. An unlit match, yeah. You're just piling them up, you're tossing them into the corner of the room, and then it often takes only a very small spark to start a bonfire, right? And we've all had that experience. Like, thinking to myself, the last time that I got really pissed inside of my relationship was not due to a singular granular event that happened. Yeah. I have a lovely partner. She's never going to do something in like one event that's going to cause me to be that like a, an eight on the anger scale yeah. at her. But what happens is it's a lot of little things and the little things that aren't processed add up over time. So one of the ways that we can defuse the priming is by processing our emotions as they arise rather than pushing them down. And a lot of the time we think that we're pushing stuff down out of a favor to other people. Mm-hmm. It is not a favor to other people nine times out of 10 to repress mm-hmm. your emotions because mm-hmm. that stuff comes out in other ways. Oh, that's very well said. Also, it's very promotive in a lot of ways of healing and personal growth to slow down the process of anger with its Mm -hmm. honeyed tip and poison barb and reward systems that can get us really carried away, turbocharged as well by our righteousness, which gets into the mix. Of course I'm angry. You made me angry. If you hadn't done that, I wouldn't be so mad. Don't blame me. Mm -hmm. You made me angry. (laughs) Right? So slowing it down to kind of filter that stuff out. But in the process of that, very often what we get in touch with are very important kinds of material deep down inside, like hurt or feeling let down or having some important longing of our heart having been thwarted or disappointed in some way. And I found for myself, uh, I made a kind of personal commitment some years ago to not speak or act from anger. Well, the first day mm-hmm. I committed to it, I probably 
blow it 20 times with a raised <laughs> eyebrow here or a certain tone there, something or other, you know. But okay, but I've gotten better and better. And what it did is it, it forced me to become more vulnerable mm. and softer and more integrated and real with you, you know, and your, your sister and your mom and, and others in my life. And that's something that can really happen. Maybe last I'll just say it because I'm on a roll, I guess. When people are centered in this way, think about famous figures over time. None of them, none of the great social reformers were rageaholics. Clearly, they're rested in profound moral authority because they don't let themselves get hijacked by anger. They feel mm. it. They are outraged sometimes. They understand the basis of it, but they're not carried away by it. When we as individuals ourselves claim our anger, are appropriately self-regulated, are aware of what lies underneath it, mm. then we communicate with others with a sense of gravity and traction and seriousness and moral weight that can have a lot of power. Maybe a way for people to relate to this too more personally or individually has to do with the characteristics that can predispose a person to be angry, both characteristics that maybe are innate and others related to that that are acquired. I know you've got some good material about that. Maybe you could kind of educate us a bit here about that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So really, really interesting research on what tends to lean people toward being dispositionally angry or away from it dispositionally. We've talked during this episode, both from the perspective of two people who are probably on the lower side of dispositional anger. I've certainly got my emotional drugs of choice. I've talked about them frequently on the podcast, typically anxiety and fear, as opposed to being more of an anger person. So it might be interesting sometime to have somebody on who identifies as more of an anger person and kind of get their take on all of this. But some of those factors that tend to lead people to struggling with anger a little bit more are people who tend to focus a bit more on things that are outside of their individual control, which is sometimes referred to as an external locus of control. This means that they think that their well-being is controlled by sources outside of the self. It's often people who struggle to see other perspectives because they view those different perspectives as threats to them of some kind, as opposed to potential sources of learning. And then also people who regulate their emotions externally, trying to regulate emotions by controlling their environment as opposed to looking inside of themselves as the primary source from which they can regulate their emotions. And this takes me to a wonderful story uh, that is from the Buddhist tradition that's often attributed to Thich Nhat Hanh, who unfortunately passed away recently. And here's the story, I'll just tell it as he tells it, I believe, in a book of his. A monk decides to meditate alone. Away from his monastery, he takes a boat and goes to the middle of the lake, closes his eyes, and begins to meditate. After a few hours of unperturbed silence, he suddenly feels the blow of another boat hitting his. With his eyes still closed, he feels his anger rising, and when he opens his eyes, he is ready to shout at the boatman who dared to disturb his meditation. But when he opened his eyes, saw that it was an empty boat, not tied up, floating in the middle of the lake, at that moment the monk achieves self-realization and understands that anger is within him. It simply needs to hit an external object to provoke it. After that, whenever he meets someone who irritates or provokes his anger, he remembers the other person is just an empty boat. Anger is inside me. 
for starters, what a beautiful story. But I think that it just really speaks to that idea of an internal versus an external locus of control. If you look at all of the traits that I named, they're all about fear of the external or looking to the external as a source of meaning in life, essentially, saying, I can't be at ease, calm, not angry, unless my environment is a certain kind of way. And I will seek to control that environment in order to control my own anger. But a lot of the time, we can't control our own environments. We've got some influence, and we should do what we can to make it better for ourselves and for everybody else. But also, it pushes us to do what we can inside of ourselves. I think that's great for us and probably a good place to sort of wrap it up. If I could, I'd like to drop a little PS into this, coming from my own personal practice. Yeah, please. Totally. It's really helped me personally to appreciate how much anger, especially in the beginning, seems so valid and so appropriate and kind of weirdly luscious as you ride that torrent initially. Yeah, totally. It really helped me to reframe anger as an affliction upon me. Mm. That word affliction is a heavy-duty word. Choose your own word if you don't like it. But I took it as, you know, my anger afflicts me. Because in the moment of anger, we feel that they deserve our anger. They are the target. And we're afflicting them. Yeah, totally. Yeah, we're going to wang them, bang. You know, they deserve it. And you suddenly realize, oh, wait a second here. You know, when I, the wanging of them is a big time affliction on me. And that's something that people, you know, might want to play around with. With some artfulness that this recognition of the ways in which anger is an affliction upon you, much of the time at least, does not in turn lead you to keep suppressing or watering down your anger or feeling somehow ashamed of it. Yeah, great distinctions. And I think a really good note to close today's episode on. So today we explored anger, particularly focusing on how we can get as much value from this challenging emotion as possible without getting captured, as you were saying there at the end, by its more problematic aspects. Our framing for today's conversation focused on balancing two truths. On the one hand, anger comes with a lot of costs, and that's one of the reasons that we predominantly think of it as a negative or problematic emotion. And then on the other hand, clearly there are benefits and a kind of vital energy that's associated with anger that is extremely powerful and when used in productive ways, can really be very useful for us. It can be useful as a tool for identifying what we really care about. It can be useful as a way to mobilize people, whether that be people individually or broader social movements. It can be a way for us to express sometimes what's really in our heart with others. And that expression can be valuable on its own merit, because there are so many people who, in part because of the story that we have about anger, have repressed their anger. Maybe they came from a family of origin where anger was only permitted to a couple of people inside of the family, for instance, the adults, and the kids weren't permitted anger as an emotional experience, and they were heavily punished if they ever expressed their anger. Maybe you belong to a group of people who's been historically marginalized or oppressed, had your anger taken away from you by other groups of individuals. Maybe you're somebody who, I think like me, had a couple of interactions just in school, just out in the world, when you were a young person, had nothing to do with your family, nothing to do with social status, 
where, wow, there was a lot of pushback from other kids because you acted in a way that they perceived as angry or aggressive. And when we get that kind of negative feedback, when we experience the costs of anger, and yes, there are real costs, it can cause us to repress the useful aspects of that emotion. Rick then made a number of distinctions between various forms that anger can take, and maybe even some aspects of anger, some of which are more useful and some of which tend to come with more problems. And specifically, he talked about aversion and hatred as being aspects of anger that tend to carry a lot of the costs. And particularly, Rick focused on aversion and hatred as aspects of anger that tend to carry a lot of the costs. We then spent a little while talking about the more positive aspects of anger because its problematic aspects are generally pretty apparent. And one of the things that we really focused on is the way that anger can teach us about ourselves. Often anger is presented as a secondary emotion, and what this means is that there's some other emotional experience that's hiding for a person underneath their anger. It could be fear or longing, sadness, grief. There are a lot of emotions that might be hiding underneath the anger. And as we drill down and become more self-aware about the processes that cause us to get into a really angry, fired-up place with another person, we can learn about ourselves. We can learn what really matters to us. We can learn about the relationships that are healthier for us or unhealthier for us. And we can, of course, use it as a tool to get out of a rut, to get unstuck, and to move into action out in the world. And I want to highlight here that there is a very appropriate role for anger in the culture and in our lives. There are all kinds of instances where somebody does something where it's entirely appropriate to be angry at them, to be frustrated, to be outraged. And we can't let what are perceived as the problematic aspects of anger crowd out its useful aspects, particularly for groups of people who have historically had their anger taken away from them. And at the same time, Rick cautioned that anger, unlike some other emotions that we generally think of as negative or problematic, can be really seductive. There is an appealing aspect to anger where when that feeling is flowing through us, it can feel really good in the moment, but it tends to come with a lot of costs long-term, both for ourselves and for other people. And it's really tempting to view anger as this thing that we're doing to somebody else, where they're the person who is receiving the costs of our anger, and our anger is the way that we punish them. But a lot of the time, we are punishing ourselves in ways large and small. Then at the end of the episode, we gave a number of pieces of advice for how people can work with their anger to maybe capture more of those useful aspects without having so many costs associated with it. First, we can take care of what tends to prime us into anger. Our anger builds up, and as irritation builds, it often becomes like throwing an unlit match into the corner of a room. Those matches pile up, and it takes only a tiny spark to start a bonfire. And man, have I found that in my own life over and over again. Think about the last time that you got pissed in an interaction with somebody else. Was it about the single thing that they did in that moment, or was it about an accumulation of things that happened either inside of the relationship or throughout the day? Yes, sometimes it's one big problem, but a lot of the time it's a buildup of a thousand small things. And when we don't express our feelings about those small things in the moment, either by dealing with them internally or by directly expressing them to the person that we're frustrated with, the price of that repression almost always comes due at some point. 
and it often does so through a big, angry blow-up. Second, we can slow down. Anger is fast. Our threat response system is tied to the amygdala, which works much more rapidly than the more top-down cortical structures in the brain, which allow us to apply a bit more reason and caution and thoughtfulness and take other perspectives, all of that stuff. And when you pause for even just a few seconds when you're getting really revved up about something to gather yourself, the more deliberate parts of your brain can catch up. And really, just a few seconds is all that it takes to avoid a choice that you later regret. Then we can think about the ways that our anger is tied to our fear. And sometimes fear is extremely justified, particularly in the big social picture. Somebody might actually be trying to pressure you or hurt you or exploit you. And safety is our most fundamental need, so we need to be really clear-eyed about threats and really skillful in how we deal with them. But it's also appropriate to know that our system, evolutionarily, is pretty much built to overreact to perceived threat, because it is much better to overreact 99 times in order to avoid the one time when the threat actually does get you. So it's appropriate to take a look at our fears with an appraising eye, not to doubt them or subvert them or repress them, but just to apply a little bit of extra reasonable evaluation to be able to take a step back and go, okay, how worried about this do I really need to be? And so much of this comes down to our individual tendencies. There are definitely people out there who are a bit too anger prone. They express anger too quickly, too easily. They get revved up about stuff that they really don't need to get revved up about. And then there are people out there who probably don't have enough expressed anger and they're repressing too much and they're holding in useful, understandable, appropriate anger directed at other people or directed at the world. And increasing our self-awareness is a great way to work with anger more effectively because we can get a clearer picture of which side of the street we're on as individuals. Then to close, we can appreciate the role of the body in this whole process. Anger is an incredibly visceral, body-based emotion, in part because it's so closely tied to our threat system. So if you've been listening to this and you've found yourself getting a bit revved up with all of this anger talk, it can be really appropriate, really useful to find ways to physically settle your body. Maybe identify where anger lives in you, the stories that you tell about that part of yourself. Maybe there are just simple calming practices you can take on. A little breath, a little moment to relax the shoulders, a second where you can lean back in your chair instead of leaning forward, or maybe, hey, if this works for you, leaning forward instead of leaning back. And I just want to emphasize again here at the end, because I think that this is such an important point. These calming mechanisms that I'm talking about now, or the various cautions that we offered throughout the episode about anger, are not about stealing your appropriate anger. They're about putting a person in a place where they can use that energy without being used by it, where they can capture the value without experiencing so much of the cost. So that's it for today's episode focused on using anger. If you enjoyed the episode, we'd really appreciate it. If you would take a moment to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already, and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review, it really does help us out. If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for just a couple of dollars a month, you could support the show and you'll receive a bunch of great bonuses in return. Until next time, thanks for listening.